Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast. My name's Ben. And I'm Lauren. And we're continuing our discussion of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Or the Pies. The Pies. And the language that they spoke. And the culture that they had. And the utter messiness of trying to figure all of this out. Which it is a mess. So, well, previously we had talked about some of the words and how that kind of reflected their society. Right. Just a reminder, there is no such thing as a pure ethnicity language or culture, and there never has been, and there was no unified Proto-Indo-European group. Right. So when we talk about the Indo-Europeans, what we really mean is this mess of people who spoke a bunch of similar languages and had some features of their culture in common and were kind of genetically related, but not always, except sometimes, but not really. Because the world is messy. It is messy. And let's also remember that as we're looking back, if you haven't listened to the first part, why are you listening to this one, first of all? Mm -hmm. Second, you need to go back and hear Ben recite a story about a naked sheep Mm -hmm. in uh, in Proto-Indo-European. Yeah. And surprisingly, it was not a Scottish linguist who came up with this. It was a German guy who came up with a reconstructed fable in Indo-European that involves naked sheep. Exactly. So let's jump back in, and uh, we will continue on with this fun and exciting journey. What, in addition to, you know, Gimbojas worked with the people of the steppes, but also what she called Old Europe, so the Bal- in the Balkans, mm-hmm. where you have walled towns, very fine ceramics. Yeah, these things are beautifully painted. Yes. We, ought, we ought to put a picture or two up on our Facebook group. Yes. And then... There were male and especially female figures that Gibaldus believed represented a mother goddess. Right. Ugh. Here we are. Well, the people of – there were several cultures in what she calls Old Europe, which is basically Romania, uh, Yugoslavia today, and uh, Greece. And they did develop a pretty high cultural level – Some of those walled towns were the largest cities in the world at the time, holding as many as 10,000 people or more. They're suspected of having um, houses with multiple stories, so the architecture was quite good. The painting is beautiful. And then there's all of these figurines, many of which look female, many of which are quite attractive. You know, They have a very stylized sort of beauty to them. And Gimbutas believed that they represented ultimately the mother goddess that everybody was worshipping. And she reconstructed their society as being very peaceful, very egalitarian, where you have men and women working together and nobody is trying to oppress anybody else. And then the Proto-Indo-European-speaking invaders come in. And they come sweeping in off the steps, riding their equos, their horses, and wielding their geisos, their spears, and wiping out the innocent matriarchal old Europeans, replacing them with patriarchy. And, you know, I I just kind of, because I wanted to look at pictures of these, and one of the first things that pops up is an article from the LA Times in 1989, when uh, she was actually a... UCLA archaeologist, Mm -hmm. and basically this still, you know, something that they're putting forward as far as, you know, books being published in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she tended to get a little bit more and more ideological as time went on, and it was, be it said, tremendously inspiring to a lot of women to read about a society where men and women were equal Nobody was trying to oppress anybody else. I mean, it showed to a lot of people that a society based on something other than go make me a sandwich, honey, could actually work. And it becomes a compelling story that once we lived in this world where everything was a whole lot better and then the fall comes when the patriarchy comes storming in and ruins everything, but maybe someday we can get back to it. It's a great story. It's got – 
a beginning stage and then a tragedy and then a hope of resolution. But the world is messy. Well, yeah. But I'll show you a good example of the story. Rian Eisler wrote a book putting forth Gimbutas' views called The Chalice and the Blade. And the chalice is the symbol of this egalitarian feminist society that was destroyed by the patriarchal masculine oppressors. And I've got the book right here, and I'm holding it up to the mic uh, so you can see it. You know, I want to make, yeah, you know, I want to convince people that I'm actually doing my homework here. It's, it's a beautiful library. I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up, you know. And she says over here on uh, page 48, at the core of the invader system was the placing of higher value on the power that takes rather than gives life. This was the power symbolized by the masculine blade, which early Kurgan cave engravings show these Indo-European invaders literally worshipped. For in their dominator society, ruled by gods and men of war, this was the supreme power. With the appearance of these invaders on the prehistoric horizon, the goddess and women were reduced to male consorts or concubines. Gradually, male dominance, warfare, and the enslavement of women and of gentler, more effeminate men became the norm. So that's what she's taking from Gimbutas' work. And I happen to have one of those books from the 80s that you mentioned. Uh, this is The Language of the Goddess. It is, be it said, beautifully illustrated. There's some amazing artifacts here. And they come from a part of the world that wasn't accessible to most archaeologists until the fall of the Iron Curtain. This is all being excavated in places like Yugoslavia, Romania, South Russia, and the Ukraine, places where Westerners couldn't easily get to work. Right. And Gimbutas writes, this is at the end of the book, the images and symbols in this volume assert that the parthenogenetic goddess has been the most persistent feature in the archaeological record of the ancient world. In Europe, she ruled throughout the Paleolithic and Neolithic, and in Mediterranean Europe throughout most of the Bronze Age. The next stage, that of the pastoral and patriarchal warrior gods, who either supplanted or assimilated the matristic pantheon of goddesses and gods, represents an intermediate stage before Christianity and the spread of the philosophical rejection of this world. A prejudice against this worldliness developed, and with it the rejection of the goddess and all she stood for. The goddess gradually retreated into the depths of forests or onto mountaintops, where she remains to this day in beliefs and fairy stories. Human alienation from the vital roots of earthly life ensued the results of which are clear in our contemporary society. But the cycles never stop turning, and now we find the goddess re-emerging from the forests and mountains, bringing us hope for the future, returning us to our most ancient human roots. And you can see why these ideas were very popular in certain pagan circles. Well, and also in feminist circles. And honestly, a lot of what she writes and how she presents is very similar to how my favorite person in the whole world, Margaret Murray, oh, yeah. presented a lot of her stuff. Mm -hmm. And it says something about us as a culture that this is something that even though there might be volumes of scientific research that debunks it, it's an easy to digest story. And most people want an easy to digest story. Right. Bruce Lincoln is a professor at University of Chicago. He started out as an Indo-European scholar and did a lot of reconstruction work and has since backed away from that and decided that you really can't accurately reconstruct these things. And he writes in a fairly recent book, Theorizing Myth, historians cum mythographers can offer origin accounts complete with heroes, adventures, great voyages, and a primordial paradise lost, all of which reflect and advance the interests of those who tell them, ideology and narrative form. So for 19th century racists and ultimately the Nazis, the myth is the Aryans striding forth with their strength and power and superior technology and horses and chariots 
you know, claiming their land, you know, based on, you know, truth, justice, and the Aryan way. For Gimbutas, it's this primordial paradise of an egalitarian, female-centered society that's destroyed by, you know, a catastrophe, but that someday we might be able to get back to. It's actually kind of similar to the Garden of Eden myth. And they're both myths. They're both... That doesn't mean that either one is intrinsically wrong, but they're both stories that we tell to make sense of the world and put ideas forth about how we should live today. So Ian Potter, who is a Cambridge University archaeologist, in this article from the Los Angeles Times in 1989, right. you know, talks about how Gimbutas' work was extremely important because it did provide a coherent and wide-ranging review of the evidence, but... Many other people rejected a lot of the symbols. I like this quote. She looks at a squiggle on a pot and says it's a primeval egg or a snake. She looks at female figurines and says they're mother goddesses. I don't really think there's an awful lot of evidence to support that level of interpretation. Right. And I think that is what happens is she she did provide a ton of research and a ton of photography and excavation work that really was very important. But her conclusions were romanticized. And be it said that her idea of the Proto-Indo-European speakers living on the steppes of uh, the Ukraine is probably basically right. Uh, nobody's come up with a better idea. Well, a guy named Colin Renfrew did, but for various reasons, I don't think uh, he's correct at saying that they came out of what's now Turkey. You know, she got that very right, at least as far as I can judge these things. Although, of course, you know, tomorrow somebody could dig something up that will make me have to rewrite all of that. Yes. But at the end of the day, her interpretation probably didn't happen. Right. You know, the steppe people lived right next to the old Europe for millennia. Mm-hmm. And they may, probably raided, because I think at that point pretty much everyone did at some point. You get desperate enough. Right. And... Well, there, there's a word we can reconstruct, choreo, which seems to be raiding parties of young men who are watching the cows and also not averse to going out and taking somebody else's cows when they chance. The Indo-Europeans were basically a bunch of cattle rustlers. I was thinking this is like the Indo-European version of the panty raid. More like a cattle raid. Yeah, but... Apparently yeah. The, the Sanskrit word for war translates as desire for cows. Cows are wealth. Mm-hmm. Fehu, yeah. The um, reconstructed name of the first rune can mean both cattle and wealth, and it comes from a society where there was no difference. Right. Uh, for that matter, in Latin, fehu corresponds perfectly to Latin pecus, and pecus could mean your cows, but it exists in words, English words like pecuniary, meaning having to do with money. Pecus could be both your cattle and your wealth. No difference. So... You have this... Yeah, so they were raiding. Right, but there was no invasion. They didn't have the technology level. It's been pointed out that what they were missing was the compound bow. Yes. If you take a bow and you put something that resists stretching on the belly of the bow, the part that you point towards whoever you're trying to shoot, and you put something that resists compression, like horn, on the other side of the bow... You make it much stiffer, and that means you can make it shorter, and that means you can fire from horseback. That's what the Mongols had, and the Parthians, and the Scythians, and the Huns all had these short but powerful composite bows. Far as we can tell, the Indo-European speakers did have bows, but not composite bows, which means they would have been about as tall as the archers. Yes, meaning that they couldn't shoot them from horseback. So you couldn't have this wave of horsemen, you know, storming across the plains, firing arrows as they go, no doubt singing, ah Yeah. That just wouldn't have been possible. There probably was low-level raiding, but not the kind of mass sweeping in of huge armies of, you know, patriarchal slavers that people like Ryan Eisler seem to be envisioning. So you've, you've basically got a clientship, traders, neighbors kind of model. Yeah, we actually think that there was violence that contributed to destroying the cultures of old Europe. There are some evidence of some of those towns that look like they got burned down. 
but it wasn't necessarily the Proto-Indo-European speakers off the steppes that were doing it. There was one that was excavated where they found arrowheads that had been fired from the outside, but they were made of local stone. It was people from that area that were shooting arrows into the town that got destroyed. So basically, they have something I want, I'm going to go get it. Yeah. And the idea of clientship is that various bands of people that spoke Proto-Indo-European dialects would have made deals with these old Indo-European towns. The Proto-Indo-Europeans say, give us some land for us to pasture our cows because we like cows. And we'll keep those people you don't like in the next town off your backs. And so, yeah, that's called a clientship model. And that's thought to be, at least by, in that book I mentioned, The Horse, the Wheel, and Language, that's thought to be the likeliest model for how old Europeans and Proto-Indo-Europeans got along. There was probably a lot of reciprocal gift exchanging. Sound familiar? Yeah. There are lots of words that we can reconstruct in Proto-European for gift and guest. Uh, The same root gave rise to guest and enemy. Gosti is the root of our word guest, and it's also the root of Latin hostile. So... You know, a guest could certainly go either way and could be friendly or possibly not so much. You know what? You know what? Speaking of gifts and guests, you know what makes a really great gift? What makes a really great gift, Lauren? Audible. Oh, yeah. I've really gotten into listening to audiobooks, especially work. Yeah, I'm a programmer, so it's sometimes good to have something kind of going while I'm going through endless lines of code. Mm -hmm. And Audible is great for that. You can go in. There's lots of really good heathen books. Mm -hmm. Uh, This saga of Ragnar Lothbrok that someone did. Oh, yeah, some clown. Yeah, Ben Mm -hmm. Wagner, I don't know. Yeah. Neil Gaiman's North Mythology, uh, a lot of Dr. Jackson Crawford's books, and our friend Uncle McRonan's uh, Modern Day Havamal is also available now. Oh, there you go. And all of those you can get on Audible with your membership along with lots of exclusive content. They've got, like, yoga that you can do and running, like, things that you can listen to while you run. It's really kind of crazy, all the things that they have available. Do they have baby yoga? Because that's really cute. Yeah, it is. I I don't know. I haven't looked at baby yoga. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can try Audible for free. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history, and you can try it for free. Check it out. Get a free book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can get Ben's translation. It's really great because there's infomercials for it. It's called The Vikings. Okay. You've probably seen it mm-hmm. for Ben's oh, book. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the ones they do on the History Channel. Or if you're like me, you can also get that mindless romance mystery, Victorian era mystery, which is what I particularly like All right. to listen to. Yeah, so get yourself a day for your ghosty. Yes, mm-hmm. and it also does make a great gift for holidays. You can actually give someone the gift of audiobooks, which is great. You know, so he commutes a lot, mm-hmm. or like me who drives. If you're driving your wagon across the, uh, the steps, steps of the Ukraine every day, you could definitely use this. Definitely. You know, if, if the Indo-Europeans had had good audiobooks, maybe they wouldn't have uh, destroyed the cultures of old Europe. That's probably right. So mm-hmm. you go to audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history. Go in there, get your free book, and try it out. You can cancel anytime, but hope you like it as much as I do. Once again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history. All right. So then tell me, what were the uh, Proto Indo Europeans like? Well, as we've said, They would have done some limited agriculture in the river valleys because they had words for things like plow and sickle, so they knew farming. They had words for pig, which would have been sue. Woo, pig? Sue, Sue. yeah. Wow. Yeah, there we go. And also porquo, so they they knew pigs. They had lots of livestock, and as I've mentioned, the corios was the band of young men who watched over their, their cattle. They were basically cowboys. They knew wheeled vehicles. Right. Lots of vocabulary for wheeled vehicles. The Yamnaya people are called that because when somebody died, they dug a more or less square pit. Often they would line it with uh, wooden walls and a roof. They'd put reed mats on the bottom and sometimes even pillows, put the dead person on his or her back with knees pointing up, 
cover the body, and this is something a lot of people did with powdered iron oxide, hematite, otherwise known as red ochre, and uh, then cover up the grave and often put a uh, mound over the grave. And the local word in Russian and Turkish for mound is kurgan. So the Yamnaya people are also sometimes called the kurgan cultures because they tend to leave these these burial mounds all over the steppes. And like many other concurrent cultures, they were patriarchal and patrilineal. Mm-hmm. So everything passed through the father and yeah. the son. A lot of people have written about Indo-European kinship terms, and I won't go too much into that, but they had a lot of specialized terms for husband's relatives, but no specific words for a wife's relatives. And the idea is that this is because women went to live in their husband's family. Our word wedding comes from the root meaning to lead. So you are at your wedding, you're leading somebody to your house. Well, you are if you're the groom, you're leading your bride. And you see that a lot in what we would, I guess, consider descendant cultures mm-hmm. of Proto-Indo-European, like the Greeks, mm-hmm. like you see in even modern India. If you've ever been to an Indian wedding, it's amazing. But one of the things they do is they do a processionary of the bride from her home or usually her hotel because, you know, the way things are to the husband. It's really cool. But that's Mm. something that carried over into many of the kind of descendant cultures there. Right. And as for the religion, Mm -hmm. now we get to talk about Georges Dumézil, French scholar, beginning work in, I believe, about the 1920s and continuing on up until fairly recently – And he proposed that everything in Proto-Indo-European society was divided into three functions. The first function is everything that has to do with rulership, law, religion, and magic. So your first function is the rulers and the priests. So your clerics. Right. Your second function is the warrior function. Your barbarians. Okay. In, in first edition, it was fighters. Yeah, well, there's also that, but I, okay. I, I play barbarians, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with my barbarians. Okay, there. yeah. So your first function is the clerics, but also the magic users. Yes. Uh, your second function is the uh, barbarians and the fighters and yes. the paladins. I guess they still have those. Yeah. Okay, I haven't played in a long time. I, I will play tomorrow night. Okay, and the third function is the providers. The schlubs that don't have a player class because they're too boring because they spend all of their time, you know, staring at the back end of a cow as they're plowing their fields. No, that's your that's your controllers, your leaders, your buffers. Oh. Those are the people who, in fact, there's a character class that Jesse was playing where one of their gifts is if you took a short rest, they could cook a meal and it would restore like half your hit points. Oh, okay. There's actually a, a character class for that. Okay, they didn't used to have that in first edition. I, I, we're on fifth edition now, Ben. Oh, we got to get with it. I'm way behind the times. Yeah. Somebody pointed out that the most perfect example of a trifunctional Dumazelian society is actually Equestria. Because oh you my have, gosh, you're right. You have the unicorns who have the magical powers and oh the leadership. You have the aggressive warriors, uh, the Pegasi, and then the earth ponies, you know, like Applejack, are the ones that go out and farm and provide for everybody. Oh, my gosh. You're absolutely you're, – Yes. Yeah. Equestria is a perfect example of a Dumazilian society. So this idea of this trifunctional division mm-hmm. extended to all of the gods that they had. Right. You have a god who's a ruler, the sky god, and a god of magic. In Norse mythology, that would be Tyr and Odin. You then have the warrior god, who Dumazil identified as Thor, because he's always going out bashing giants on the head. And then the third function would be the gods of fertility and abundance, who for Dumazil would be the Vanir, Frey and Freya. And it extends to, someone pointed out that if you look at, for example, healing in Indo-European cultures, there's often a distinct division into healing by spells, healing by the knife, healing by cutting people, yes, and healing by medicinal plants. And that corresponds to the first, second, and third. There's even first, second, and third have their own colors, white for the first and red for the second and black for the third, and so on. 
It also bears a resemblance to French society before the French Revolution, where you had the first estate was the nobles, and the second estate was the knights, and the third estate was the everybody else. You have medieval societies that were organized where, you know, the church prays for everybody and the knight fights for everybody and the peasant feeds everybody. And on the one hand, I've just read something pointing out that just about any society that develops agriculture develops a three or sometimes a four class system. The Aztecs had this and they're decidedly not Indo-European. Maybe. I'm being facetious. I actually took a a semester of the Aztec language. It ain't Indo-European, let me tell you. You're supposed to say, Quali Tlaskamate. Quali Tlaskamate. Close enough. Right. The other problem is that Dumazil was hanging out in the 20s and 30s with this very conservative group in France called Action Française, French Action. That sounds fascist. Well, when you translate it, it doesn't. French action just sounds like it might be the title of one of those movies that you get in those, you know, sleazy truck stops. Not that I would know. Or perhaps just like some sort of movie where Sean Bean dies. Yeah. Or French act, or one of those rubber novelties that you get in those coin operated machines in men's restrooms. They have them in women's restrooms too. They do? Yes. Okay, right. But Action Francaise was agitating for this very stable, traditionalist society with a very strong social hierarchy where everybody knew their place. Dumazil really didn't like Nazis, and for that matter, he didn't like Germans very much, certainly not when they started marching in his direction. But he was in this very nationalist, very traditionalist, awfully close to fascist group, uh, Action Francaise, And it's an interesting question as to just how much this ideology might have influenced his views of Indo-European society. It's certainly something to watch out for. And if you look at a lot of Indo-European societies, we really don't see that trifunctionalism very much. I mean, Thor brings fertility with lightning and thunder and blessing the fields with rain— he also is the only god who's directly addressed in rune inscriptions to hallow the inscription. His hammer has magic and priestly powers of making things sacred. That's one of the things that I run into when I'm speaking with people who aren't heathen or new heathens. And you're taught this even right. in American, well, 20 years ago. I don't know what they're learning now in senior English, but when I was in senior English mythology, but it was it was very comparative and very one-to-one-to-one, right? you know, and so this is the god Mm -hmm. of this domain, and it's much more complicated than that with the Norse gods. Yeah, when you start learning mythology, everybody is god of this or god of that. But, I mean, Frey, for example, is supposedly a fertility god, but he's also called Atrivi, the god who rides out in a skaldic poem. He's said to lead armies. Well, blood makes the grass grow, right? Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And he's also the founder of the the Ingling dynasty of uh, pagan Sweden. I think that that's something that it's not as, you know, it's much more, it's richer and much more complex than what most of us learned in, you know, high school mythology. Right. You could probably say the same for Greek mythology or, or anything like that. Now, we can reconstruct some deity names. We think there was a sky god whose name would have been something like Dios. The son, his daughter, would have had a name something like Suel, or Suelio, or something like that. And the dawn was called Ausos. There's good evidence for a storm god whose name would have been something like Perquans. In Norse, uh, that name shows up as Fjörgin. We don't know much about that's said to be Frigg's father, but very little is ever said about him. But in Russian paganism, you have Pierun, mm-hmm. you have Perkonas in Lithuanian mythology, and in India, you have Paryanya. Yes. And they all go back to somebody called Perkons. There may or may not have been a river goddess uh, whose name would have been something like Danu, whose name may end up in the Danube as well as some of the steppe rivers like the Dnieper and the Don and the Dniester. 
And there seems to have been a personification of death whose name would have been something like Colio. That gives rise to hell. Yes. But it also shows up in words like seller and conceal. Hell is not a punisher. Hell just means the concealer, the person who hides the dead and you don't get to talk with them anymore. So they had evidence they have for religious songs, feasts, Mm -hmm. and poured offerings. Yeah, geu is the root meaning offerings that you pour out. And people debate where the word God comes from. But according to at least some things that I've read, God is etymologically related to this root geu. A God is somebody that you pour things out to, a God you invoke through pouring out offerings. That may also be the root of gout, uh, which is one of Odin's names in Norse mythology. It may distantly mean the invoked. So we know a few things about religion of the Proto-Indo-Europeans with the usual caveat that it was probably a complete mess. Well, I mean, the religion of the areas that we call heathen yeah. is a complete mess. Mm-hmm. I just Yeah, no change there. The arguments that I have been in this week about like Anglo-Saxon and Norse and Yule practices, arguments, debates, debates mm-hmm. a better word, with some of my Anglo-Saxon friends, yeah, it's a hot mess. It's it's a hot mess, mm-hmm. but that's okay. It's yeah. our hot mess. Yeah, I like that. It's a hot mess, but it's, <laughs> it's our, our hot mess. mess. I like that. But yeah, we can't assume that there was one unified people who said, hey, we're the Proto-Indo-Europeans and we all worship Dios and Swell and Ausos and Perquans. There would have been different tribes, different bands yeah. with different religions, different gods. And when they met, no doubt one of them said, you're not doing this right. And I bet someone else said, you're not the boss of me. And then they probably tried to steal each other's cows. Oh, and then drank. Um, of course. Drank medhu. We can reconstruct a word for mead or honey. Ooh. So, and that, I think that that's interesting there also because you may have also seen where we have now kind of regional gods. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you don't live anywhere near the ocean, an ocean god is not really going to do much for you. Mm-hmm. But if you live next to the Arkansas River, mm-hmm. just saying, you know, where certain gods held more importance based on their own. And it, it was that yeah. way back in the day. I've been looking at a recent paper that reviews Scandinavian place names derived from gods. And a lot of place names in Denmark come from Tyr, none in Sweden. Nobody in Sweden had heard of Tyr or at least thought he was important enough to name anything after him. Maybe we should shed a tear. Uh, uh, yeah, the Swedes shed a tear. Very good. Yeah. And the Swedes, of course, named a whole lot of things after uh, after Frey. Right. And Thor is pretty universal, although there's parts of Norway that don't have any Thor names. There's even a region in central Scandinavia where there's place names derived from a god named Ulin, who seems to be a female counterpart to Ul whom Snorri never thought to mention at all. So, like, what do we do with that? So, Ben, I have a question. I have an answer. Where, where, so we were talking about the Indo-Europeans, but where does this word Aryan start coming back into play where it gets ugly? Okay. Well, I mentioned that this Aryan word comes from Persian and Sanskrit. Scholars connected it with words like Ire for Ireland, German Echa for honor, And by about 1887, it's starting to get used in Germany to mean non-Jewish, non-Slavic European. People are starting to take this whole thing entirely too seriously, even before the Nazis themselves have actually gained power. Uh, There's a very long tradition of German anti-Semitism going back to Martin Luther. Yeah, that's been... uh, That's actually... Discussion about Martin Luther's anti-Semitism has actually been... Brought up in the pagans very recently. Mm, okay. Shout out to my buddies at uh, our pagan. Okay. So, so, so th- this has always been lurking and it's kind of inflamed by German unification in 1871, which removes the last of the old laws restricting what Jews could do. Right. And that bothers the more conservative people. 
And there were people that were seeing basically the entire history of the world as conflict between Aryans and Jews. Bless their hearts. Bless their hearts, indeed. And by about 1887, businesses and benevolent societies and sporting clubs and things like that started slipping in what they called the Aryan paragraph, denying employments and benefits and things like that to non-Aryans, which basically meant no Jews, no Russians. The idea of having that kind of ban is not something that's unique to Germany. You saw that in America, mm-hmm. you know, no, where you would have race and also bans on Jews mm-hmm. as well as the Irish. Right. But as soon as Hitler comes to power, it starts going national. Jews and people of mixed ancestry, Mischlinga, were banned from the civil service. You couldn't work for the state if you were not an Aryan. Then they were banned from education. You couldn't go to university if you weren't an Aryan. And by the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, non-Aryans were denied citizenship. Yes. But the Nazis spent a lot of effort measuring skulls and things like that, trying to come up with a simple test for who was and who wasn't Aryan. The fact is that you can't do that there were an awful lot of people that looked very, you know, blonde and blue-eyed but had Jewish ancestry yeah. because again, you know, genes, cultures and languages don't have parallel histories. It's messy. Also apparently if you're descended from African royalty mm. and your mother's German, you are considered Aryan according mm-hmm. to, I I read a biography very recently about a one of the few mixed race people in Germany during the Nazi era, right. whose mother was German, his father was a diplomat and was an, an African, legit African prince, and right. he was considered Aryan because he came from nobility. Mm-hmm. Well, try try as they might, the Nazis never did come up with a good way where you could always tell Aryan from non-Aryan, which meant that it was always going to be a subjective criterion, and they could always find excuses to let you into the Aryan club if they needed you. Money. Well, if you have enough money, you could buy your way into almost anything. I was thinking of the Japanese. Yes. You know, who are decidedly not Indo-European and yet were kind of allowed to be honorary Aryans when, in fact, you know, they are they are, in fact, no such thing. So it seems like one of the biggest problems then we're looking at with Indo-European scholars is that you have a lot of ties to Nazis or fascism or racist or anti-Semitic. Yeah, a Constant problem has been it gets very hard to study this kind of thing without getting dragged into politics because the Indo-Europeans have been made the subject of these modern myths. I've already mentioned Dumézil having ties to uh, French quasi-fascism in the 20s and 30s. He was friends with a German named Otto Hoefler who wrote this book on uh, ancient German warrior societies and who was also a pretty stone-cold Nazi. He was friends with a guy named Stig Vikander, who was Swedish and fascist sympathizer. Today, a gent by the name of Jean Audry. I've got one of his books. It's a good enough read. He's at the University of Lyon, and he's also down with Jean-Marie Le Pen's National Front. And it turns out the... Journal of Record for Indo-European Studies is called, sensibly enough, uh, the Journal of Indo-European Studies. The same publisher puts out a journal called Mankind Quarterly, which also sometimes has good material on the Indo-Europeans, but also has an awful lot about eugenics and racial inferiority, papers proving that you know people who are not fully... Aryan, us right kind of white people just aren't intelligent as everybody else. And that is, of course, Roger Pearson. Yeah, that's put out by a guy named Roger Pearson who founded the Institute for the Study of Man. He's received grant money from a group called the Pioneer Fund, grants for uh, racial betterment, and he's definitely a proponent of eugenics, racial inequality. You know, he's in bed with the neo-Nazis as well. So I'm gonna gonna toss something out here, and this mm-hmm. is Lauren's speculation, as as I am want to do on this podcast. But it seems to me that this reminds me a lot of when you have a belief and you're looking for a rationale. Mm-hmm. So 
I see this a lot. People, Christianity tends to be that people, the, the thing that people kind of grab onto because they're the most familiar with where, you know, pick and choose from the Bible or, you know, this interpretation of the scripture to back up my already pre-existing belief mm-hmm. in X, Y, and Z. Right. So it seems to be that a lot of this could very well be a situation where I already have this belief that Germans are superior or mm-hmm. that there's this belief that other groups are inferior. So I'm going to try to find reasoning. Oh, well, you know, Germans have always, you know, or when you look at like Hitler, or, you know, what land? Well, clearly I can occupy this land because I have found proof that the Germans who are the descendants of this great Indo-European blah, 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 are, this was their native homeland. So I have the right to claim this. It's it's similar. You you have this kind of stuff where basically it's less about science for the sake of science or research or discovery and more about I'm trying to find something that will progress my personal beliefs and opinion. Yeah, we do this with history all the time. You're oh, yeah. exactly right. And to take an example much more closer to home, think about views of the Civil War. Oh, absolutely. You know, in the South, it's, you know, very much the lost cause and – you know, we were fighting nobly and bravely for our our homelands and our way of life, quietly sweeping under the rug the fact that our way of life involved owning other people and beating them if they didn't pick our cotton. But yeah, you have the lost cause and the nobility of the South takes the Civil War and uses it to push one particular narrative, whereas people that were focusing on you know, ending slavery and, you know, striving to free people will take the same story and push it in a completely different direction. And I think that's, we even, you even see that with, in heathenry, mm-hmm. you see, you know, the, you have people who, both ways, you have people who will push heathenry to a racist bent. Mm-hmm. And you also have people on, kind of, you know, it's, I'm a pico call me scum, but you have people on my side of the world who will, take the evidence that we have about the place of women, for instance, mm-hmm. in in uh, pre-Christian Germanic society. And while, yes, women had more freedoms than mm-hmm. many other cultures, it was by no means an equality paradise either. So I think that, you know, it, it goes both ways. We we all try to bend history to our, our own preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. All right, our own agendas. Yeah, and maybe there's no way to completely avoid doing that, but you can try to be as objective and fair as as possible. You know, hopefully this podcast will help some people do that. We try. We try. and At least we're open about what our biases are. And at least we cite our sources. We do. Oh, one last thing. The field of prehistory recently got thrown into a tizzy because it's now possible to take ancient skeletons and extract DNA from them. Yes, it is. And you can find markers. Now, they're not necessarily particularly interesting markers. They often don't do anything. But you can find markers that help you identify populations. And, you know, we now know that the modern population of Europe is pretty much made of, you know, one set of the first people who moved in after the Ice Age and another set of ancestors who came up from Turkey in the Near East and introduced farming, and the third set of people who came off the steppes were all mixes of the earliest hunter-gatherers and the farmers and the steppe pastoralists, the probable Indo-European speakers. We're mutts. Yeah, we're all mutts. And it's also been possible to identify genes for skin color, And it turns out that the probable people who probably spoke Proto-Indo-European from the Yamnaya culture and then the people, once they moved into Europe and started intermarrying with everybody else, you've got a different type of culture called corded ware because of the pots they made. And I thought maybe they were... uh Corduroy? Uh, no, no such luck. They No, they took cords and wrapped them around their pots when they were still soft and decorated them that way. It's rather attractive. But the corded wear people, as it turns out, I'm not sure whether or not they could have passed the paper bag test. They were a lot browner 
then I'm sure people like Roger Pearson and Georges Dumazil would be comfortable admitting. So, yeah, not the herd of blonde beasts of prey that some people would have wished for. They were more like savagely tan beasts yeah. of prey. And that's, you know, makes sense. Because mm-hmm. we could yeah. go mitochondrial Eve and all that, but... Yeah, they don't correspond to, you know... A modern ethnic group, and they damn sure don't correspond, you know, to what the Nazis thought was the uh, the racial ideal, which was what as as blonde as Hitler, as strong as Himmler, and as slender as Goebbels. I think. All I know is that a lot of people that claim to be the master race now look an awful lot like the pictures the Nazis put out of like what was not desirable. Mm-hmm. That's all, all I'm right. saying. And so it goes. So one other thing that to throw in here is to talk about the idea of religion being determined by language mm-hmm. with uh, Friedrich Max Müller. Yeah, Max Müller was a, a scholar at, I believe, Oxford University in the 19th century. He did point out what we've been saying, that uh, language and culture don't follow each other. I've got a quote of his, Müller was the guy who said... An ethnologist who speaks of Aryan race, Aryan blood, Aryan eyes and hair is as great a sinner as a linguist who speaks of a dolichocephalic dictionary or a brachycephalic grammar. What the heck? Dolichocephalic means having a long head. And I think the Aryans supposedly had longer skulls than all of those non-Aryans. We come from France. What? We come from France. Coneheads? Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, dolichocephalic in the opposite direction. Uh, horizontally dolichocephalic, I okay. think. But he made the point that, you know, Aryan, as they were using it back in the day, was a linguistic term, but it doesn't mean physical features any more than a word describing physical features like blonde or blue-eyed or dolichocephalic applies to a language. Languages aren't blonde. And Ben? Yes? I, I heard people speak ginger, it, but it, okay. the language has no soul. I see, I see. Okay, very good, very good. Mueller still thought that there uh, was a connection between language and culture, and in particular, he thought religion was determined by your language. He was the guy who pointed out that Chinese doesn't have word endings, and it doesn't have grammatical endings, and it doesn't have uh, the same kind of compounding rules that you get. And ergo, the Chinese religion was, as he put it, colorless and unpoetical consisting of the worship of a host of single spirits without any higher principle to hold them together. Naturally, us Aryan types who have word endings and grammatical declensions and things like that would have a much richer religion than somebody who only has these chains of isolated words that don't inflect for uh, number and gender. Bless his heart. Bless his heart, indeed. Mueller was also the guy who thought that the earliest religion of all humanity was worship of the sun and that all because you know you get up one morning what's the first thing you see my coffee okay what's the first thing that you would see if you were living in some cave somewhere the sun the sun right so obviously you go worship that because that's what shows up and uh, believe that all of the myths of the world could be traced back to a solar myth to this shining god that is born and then dies, and then is reborn again. Everything is a solar myth. Somebody took his ideas and worked out that the British Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, was a solar myth. And then somebody else worked out that Max Mueller himself was a solar myth, because you can make absolutely anything into a solar myth if you are imaginative enough. Now I need to come up with a way that C-sharp, the programming language, is a solar myth. I could do it. I'm, I'm sure you could. Maybe not on this podcast. No, but I could do it. Okay. So basically, we boil all this down. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about this now. You know, you have a lot of misconceptions about Mm Proto-Indo-European language, culture, beliefs, groups. But at the end of the day, that is for a reason. Mm -hmm. Because it's a mess. Right. 
there probably were people who might have told stories that sounded something like Hoes Quesio Ulchnech Nechest. Gesundheit. That's that's a sheep seat on whom there was no wool. So what you're saying is a naked sheep. Yeah. There were people who told jokes about naked sheep and buried their dead in pits and might occasionally have rustled cattle of the city dwellers in what's now southern Romania. So you can sort of reconstruct Proto-Indo-European language and culture and even something about the religion and trace how that developed into the Germanic religions. But it's very tempting to make a nice, neat, simple story out of it with good guys and bad guys and stories like that get used to support measures today in the present. That's why we tell stories like this. And that's the difference, I think, between mythology and fact. Right. You know, we we tell these stories of these myths. Right. But what happened is always more messy, more complicated, and quite frankly, more interesting. Right. And we always need to keep that in mind, you know, keep working on those critical thinking skills that we professors are always being told to inculculate in our pupils. And examine the things that you're told. Don't just, as to quote, uh, to quote LeVar Burton, and don't just take my word for it. Okay. Reading Rainbow. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. And don't just take our word for it either. We'll post all of our sources for this on our website. And you can go out and check this out yourself. And, you know, as always, we have sources. We have discussion. You can always find us pretty much all over social media. Can, you, can we say we're the podcast with homework? We, oh, God, no. No, Ben, no. Okay. But we do at least back up what we say. Right. And I think that that is important. And also, look at the sources. I mean, we just talked about the Journal of Indo-European Studies, Take that with a metric ton of salt mm-hmm. because... Yeah, there is good work in there. You can't really work in the field without reading it from time to time. But always be ready to question what you're being told. Exactly. So, Ben, what have we learned this week? Well, we've learned that there were a bunch of people that used to tell jokes about naked sheep. And some of them probably moved into Europe at some point, and their language eventually gave rise to ours, but the real story is messier. And there's a guy who who was in India like 300 years ago that spoke 20 languages. I'm still hung up on that. That's yeah, they, amazing. Yeah, they, his nickname was, they called him Oriental Jones, which I'd always thought was that really weird animated movie that I think Eddie Murphy did the voices for. Oh, yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. So. Yeah, evidently not. No. So, you know, if you like what we're doing, and you want to support us, you can go to Patreon. Uh, we got sneak peeks, special gifts, and we even have an exclusive Heathen History Facebook group where you can ask Ben questions and we will make him answer, we being myself and his wife. And you can find that out by patreon.com forward slash Heathen History. And if you don't like what you're doing, don't tell me or I'm going to go home and cry uncontrollably. But if you do like what we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at Heathen History or Facebook at facebook.com slash heathenhistory for updates. And as always, our show notes and sources are available on our website, heathenhistory.com. That's right, because we back up our work. Our theme music is Happy Viking by Roller Music. For the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, Wassail, y'all.